0: Well, good morning, church. Uh, It's great to be here with you this morning. If I haven't had the privilege of meeting you yet, my name is Ben. I'm the community pastor here. And we're in the middle of a series right now called Dear Church, the seven letters of Revelation chapters two to three. And we're in week three of the seven weeks. In the first week, we looked at Jesus' message to the church in Ephesus, and his message to them was love again. They were strong on truth, but they'd lost their first love. Last week, we looked at Jesus' church, uh, message to the church in Smyrna, and he said to them, hang on. They were poor, they were afflicted, they were about to go through a really tough trial, and his message was to, them, to them was to hang on and to persevere. And this week, in Revelation 2, verses 12 to 17, we come to Jesus' message to the church in Pergamum, and his message to them is watch out. Now, this church almost has the opposite problem to the first church, Ephesus, Ephesus. Ephesus was strong on truth, and Jesus praised them for not putting up with this group called the Nicolaitans. But in our passage, our church, Pergamum, this this church in Pergamum, is putting up with this group. They're allowing them to exist among them. And so Jesus says, watch out, because you're in danger of compromising yourself by tolerating this false Christian teaching among you. Now, there's a couple of reasons why this might have been happening. First of all, there was great pressure from the outside of the church, cultural pressure for them to change and compromise some of their beliefs. And what was happening was these false Christian teachers and groups were coming in and saying, well, it doesn't need to be that hard. You don't have to stand against this. You don't have to look like bigots. You don't have to look like haters. Maybe actually the Bible isn't how you thought it was, maybe actually you can accept what the world says and you can affirm what the world says and you can be part of the world and you can follow Jesus. You can have both. That seems to be what was going on in the church in Pergamon, that cultural pressure to compromise and these false Christian teachers were coming in and saying, well, it's okay, you can, you can join them and you can have Jesus. You can have the world and you can have Jesus. We face some similar pressures today, don't we? Uh, We face pressure from our culture to compromise from our Christian beliefs. And you can jump on YouTube or the internet and you'll find plenty of people who call themselves Christians who will say, well, maybe there's not a tension there that needs to be held. Maybe you need to rethink some of your beliefs. Maybe actually you can join the world in this way. An example of cultural pressure to compromise would be uh, someone like Andrew Thorburn. He was the CEO of Essendon Football Club and the AFL for a day. And uh, not because of anything he said, but because of a church he belonged to, um, who had mainstream Christian beliefs about sexuality, um, people started calling for his resignation. And so after a day, he resigned. And the example simply illustrates that Christian beliefs about sexuality and about abortion uh, are not just viewed by the world as uh, irrelevant, but dangerous, And so there's pressure to either be quiet about these beliefs or change these beliefs altogether. And so on top of that, we have some of this pressure to compromise. And then on top of that, we've got different Christians and groups and teachers that you can find online who will say, well, maybe the Bible doesn't teach that about sexuality. Maybe you can affirm everything the world affirms and join the world. Maybe the Bible doesn't teach that about money. Maybe you can Uh, Maybe Jesus does want you to be successful and financially successful and have the big house and everything you ever wanted, and you can follow him. Whatever it might be, you can find these sort of false Christian groups that will come in and can deceive us and say, well, maybe we can have Jesus and the world. Maybe we can find full acceptance from both. And that's why we need to hear what Jesus says to the church in Pergamum, because we need to learn how to discern and resist false Christian teachings that tell us we can fit in with the world completely. So let's open up Revelation 2 verses 12 to 17, and we're going to approach this passage under four headings. The first is this, Jesus's identity in verse 12. In verse 12, it says, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Now, that is quite an intimidating picture. Jesus is standing there with this deadly sword as he gives this letter to the church. That's a fearsome picture. What does this sword illustrate? What's it teaching us? Well, Jesus has come to divide like a sword divides. He's come like with a meat cleaver when you cut away the fat from the meat. He's come to cut away the false believers from the true believers as he delivers this message to this church. If this church is going to gain the courage to confront false teaching in their midst, they need to have this vision of Jesus. Yes, Jesus is kind and he is loving, but he's also fearsome. He also holds all authority in heaven and on earth. And he's also the one who will come back at the end of Revelation to judge and to do justice. I love how Dane Ortland brings out this part of Jesus' character in his book, Deeper in my opinion, the best Christian book there is on growth in Christ. And this is what he says. I love this. He says, Jesus Christ is overseeing all that happens both in the church and in world history at large. Our perception of and ability to see his rule may wax and wane, may change, but that's perception only. His actual rule holds steady, supreme, strong, exhaustive, all-seeing. No drug deal goes down apart from his awareness. No political scandal unfolds beyond the reach of his vision. No injustice can be exacted behind his back. When today's world leaders gather together, they themselves are held in the hand of a risen Galilean carpenter. This supreme reign holds true not only for the cosmos and for world history, but also for your own little life. He sees you. He knows you. Nothing is hid from his gaze. You will be judged one day, not according to what was visible to others, but according to what you really were and did. Have you reduced the Lord Jesus to a safe, containable, predictable Savior who pitches in and helps out your otherwise smoothly running existence? Have you treated what is spiritually nuclear as a A battery? Might we have unwittingly domesticated the expansive authority and rule of Jesus Christ over all things? Might we be lacking an appropriate fear of, wonder at, trembling before the Lord Jesus, the real Jesus who will one day silence the raging of the nations with a moment's whisper. Jesus rules. And this is the one to whom we are introduced to at the beginning of this letter. He is the one who holds the sharp, double-edged sword. He has come as Judge to sort out what was happening in this church. Do you know Jesus as judge? Do you fear Jesus' rejection more than your co workers' or neighbors' or friends' rejection? He is the one who has the sharp, double edged sword. This is how Jesus introduces himself to the church in Pergamum in this letter. The believers needed this vision of Jesus to help them take a decisive stance against compromise. But Jesus doesn't jump straight into rebuking them. He actually has something to praise them for as their judge at first. And this is what we see in the next section, Jesus' encouragement in verse 13. This is what he says. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Now, first, what? What, why does Jesus say that Pergamon is the place where Satan has his throne? Well, there's, there's a few factors that go into Jesus saying this. Three things. First, this is the first city in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. It was located in now. Um, it's the first city to build a temple for emperor worship, and it became the leading place for emperor worship in the area. Second, it was a center for the worship of this god called Asclepius, Asclepius had a symbol of the snake to represent him. Well, Satan represented by you know, a serpent in Genesis 3. You can see the similarities there. And then thirdly, this, this city also had a great big temple to Zeus, and it looked like it was a massive throne. That's, it was in the shape of this massive throne. And so those three reasons, the, the, temp, the, the, the commitment to Caesar, the worship of this snake god, and this throne to Zeus seems to be behind what Jesus is saying here, that you you dwell in this place where Satan has his throne. This was a city deeply committed to the emperor and to different pagan gods. And Jesus said, I know this. And I know where you live. Jesus is intimately familiar with his churches and with his people. And the same thing goes for us Jesus knows where we live, He knows what we face in modern- day Brisbane. He knows the pressures we face in Australia. He knows what it feels like to be on the train or feels like to be in the city. he knows what's going on in the highest office towers in Brisbane and in the darkest corners of Fortitude Valley. He knows what it 's like on the streets of Warner and Petrie and Lawnton and in the hills of Sanford and places like Kashmir. He knows he knows what we feel, he knows the pressures we face he knows where we live. When you feel alone or on the outside or like a loser in Brisbane or in the culture, Jesus says, I know, I know what you're going through. I know where you live. I'm with you. Jesus goes on and says to the church in Pergamum in verse 13, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. See, this was a really solid church. They loved Jesus and they held fast to him even when one of their brothers died for the faith. There was so much pressure on them to renounce Jesus or at least to declare Caesar Lord over Jesus. But I want us to notice something subtle here. When Jesus addresses the church, he doesn't call on them to get involved in some kind of culture war. He doesn't even call Zeus or any of the other gods the enemy. He pulls back the curtain. That's what Revelation is doing. He pulls back the curtain and shows them what's really going on. The real enemy behind these things is Satan. That's why he says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, not because there was a literal throne to Satan, but because Satan is behind these things that oppress them. Satan was the true enemy. It's important to say as well that we aren't facing the same kind of pressure as the church in Pergamon. Pressure for us might be uh, rejection or ostracism or being cancelled. But one of their Christian brothers was killed for his faith. And that sounds a bit extreme to us in Australia. But it happens today in other parts of the world. And so we need to count the cost of following Jesus just like so many other Christians have in our world. Take our brothers and sisters in the church in China, for example. President Xi Jinping has been increasing the pressure against Christians and other religions, and essentially he wants their total allegiance to the Communist Party. One pastor said a few years ago he said, The Chinese Communist Party wants to be the God of China and the Chinese people. But according to the Bible, only God is God. The government is scared of the churches. In China, Christians are under constant surveillance and pressure to renounce their faith. Churches are regularly shut down, pastors are beaten, and Christian leaders are imprisoned on trumped-up charges. Now, not only should we be praying for our brothers and sisters in China, but they remind us that our faith in Jesus is worth any price we have to pay in this world. They show us how precious our faith is. And Jesus is pleased with believers who hold fast to him under intense pressure. He encourages the Christians in Pergamon. But yet, the church had a problem. I find that incredible. They stood firm during this intense persecution, but yet Jesus still got an issue with them. Something threatened their existence as God's people. They were tolerating something, something a little more subtle and deceptive. And Jesus says they need to deal decisively with this lest they face his sword. We see this in Jesus' rebuke in verses 14 to 16. He says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So the church allowed these two groups to just operate within the church family. The Nicolaitans and the Balaam group. Now, we don't know much about the Nicolaitans. But the fact that verse 15 starts with likewise suggests they believe something similar to the Balaam group. And we have a lot more information on Balaam. So if we can understand him, we can understand the essence of the false teaching floating around in this church. So where do we learn about Balaam? Well, he was this guy in the Old Testament. You can find out about him in Numbers chapters 22 to 24 as Israel was coming out of the wilderness and they were beginning to take the land that God had promised them, they came before the Moabites and the king of Moab, King Balak, was scared. And so he hired this mysterious figure called Balaam. He was a prophet. seems like he heard from God and he hired him. He said, you know, whoever you curse is cursed. I want you to curse the Israelites. I want you to help me. I'll reward you handsomely. I'll pay you. And so it's kind of a funny story because Balaam eventually goes and he keeps going before God and says, can I curse the Israelites? He says, no, i bless them, you must bless them. And so he keeps pronouncing all these blessings on the Israelites and King Bala, Balak gets so angry after a while. He's like, what are you doing? I'm trying to pay you money to curse them. You keep blessing my enemies. And by the end of the story, things go a bit pear-shaped for Israel. I and mean, you get verses elsewhere in the Old Testament that tell you what happened. Essentially, what seemed to happen was the prophet Balaam said to King Balak, hey, I can't curse these people, but what you could do is get them to sin, and if you can entice them into sin, then God will judge them for you. And so he said to them, send your young women in and invite the young men of Israel out to these pagan feasts where they sacrifice this food to God, and they can feast together and, and perhaps seduce them into sexual immorality. And that's what happened. The young men of Israel behaved dishonorably. They joined them at these feasts And it degraded into sexual morality. And God actually judged the Israelites. Thousands of them died because of this. So how does this help us understand what this Balaam group in Pergamum was teaching? Well, it seems these false teaching groups taught that you could worship Jesus and fully participate in the culture, fully affirm the culture. Just like Balaam enticed Israel to join in on the pagan feasts and to commit sexual morality, so too these groups were teaching the Christians in the church that they could join the pagan feasts in the city, that it didn't really matter, it was okay, you know, perhaps they said something like, idols, they're not real gods, so you can, you know, you can go there, you can eat the food that's offered in worship of that god, and I know that things get pretty sketchy because some of these feasts would sometimes turn into basically sex parties it can get pretty sketchy, but, you know, it's, it's worth the risk. Maybe you'll be able to share the gospel with someone there and, you know, go along to these feasts. It seems like the, the Balaam and the Nicolaitans were teaching something like that. It says in our verse, enticing them to eat food sec- sacrificed to idols and to sexual morality. And the reason it would have been tempting to believe this is because you could come under some serious persecution if you didn't participate in these feasts. All citizens were expected to be a part of this. You, you could bring upon, they, they believed you could bring the wrath of the gods upon them if you didn't, you know, kind of seek these gods' favor with them. And so they got angry about this. Sometimes they'd socially ostracize you. Sometimes they wouldn't give you jobs. Sometimes they'd hurt you economically. Sometimes they'd even call the Roman, Romans to get involved and get someone like Antipas killed. So these, these groups, the Nicolaitans and the Balaam group, were teaching a theology of compromise maybe God's not really against us. Maybe we can join. Maybe we can follow Jesus and be part of the world. Maybe we can be fully accepted by the world and by Jesus. But Jesus had to give the church a sharp rebuke to wake them up to the danger of these teachings. He says in verse 16, Repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. To repent, like we've said in previous weeks, means to do a U-turn. It means to turn around and go a different, go back in the right direction. What did that mean for the church in Pergamum? Well, it means that they needed to correct these these Christians teaching these false things, and if they didn't repent, to put them out of the church, to not recognize them as Christians any longer. You cannot have all of Jesus and all of the world. There'll be some things in our culture that are good that we can affirm, but there'll be some things in our culture that we must resist and stand firm against. What does this mean for Oasis Church in North Brisbane today? Well, I don't see factions and groups among us that are spreading false teaching. So I'm, that's encouraging, at least. <laughs> so how do we apply this to ourselves? Well, I think it means that we need to learn how to discern false Christian teaching that's floating around the place and online and on YouTube and that kind of thing. It teaches us to exercise discernment. We need to watch out for the modern day Balaams who are leading Christians astray, telling them they can have all of Jesus and all of the world. Beware of the Balaams out there teaching you that worshiping Jesus will mean you'll be successful on the world's terms that Jesus wants you to be financially successful, successful in your career, doesn't the Bible rather teach that Jesus is the ultimate treasure and that he is worth giving up career and homes and riches for? Beware of the Balaams out there twisting the truth that God is love and pitting God's love against judgment and saying, well, love will win out over judgment in the end will trumpet, And so there is no ultimate judgment and there is no hell and it doesn't really matter because love will win. That's not what the Bible teaches. Doesn't the Bible rather teach that God's justice flows out of his love? That love cannot ignore the atrocities that are done in our world and the genocides that happen in our world, the institutional abuse that happens in our world. That love must right wrongs and that hell is God's loving response to evil, to rid our world of evil. Beware of the Balaams out there who contradict thousands of years of Christian teaching on sexuality and demand that we join the West's embrace of alternative sexual lifestyles. Doesn't the Bible rather teach that we should hold to Jesus' teaching on sexuality and love people who disagree with us and show them respect and courtesy? Beware of the Balaams out there who promise you that you can have both Jesus and the world, that you can be accepted by Christ and be accepted by the world. If you choose the world over Christ, you will receive the world's reward but one day you will face the sword of Christ in the final judgment. This was Jesus' warning when he rebuked the church for allowing false teaching in their midst. But Jesus also gave them a promise to help them persevere through the pressure. This is what we see in the final section, Jesus' promise. He says, To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. So what is Jesus promising here? What is the hidden manna? Well, remember in the context of that Balaam story, Israel had just come through the wilderness, and that difficult time, God provided them with manna from heaven. It was like bread from heaven that fed them and sustained them during that time. And so God is saying to this church, Jesus is saying to them, I'll sustain you. I'll give you some of the hidden matter. Maybe you're worried about losing your job. Maybe you're worried about putting food on the table. I'll sustain you. I'll I'll give you what your soul really needs. What about the white stone? Well, the color white in the book of Revelation has connotations of righteousness and innocence. And so Jesus is saying, I'll see you as innocent even if they see you as guilty. The white stone was used in the local law courts to vote for innocence and the black stone was used to vote for condemning someone. And Jesus is saying, the world may give you the black stone. They may say, you are condemned, you are guilty, your beliefs are dangerous. But Jesus is saying, I'll give you the white stone. I will declare you righteous and innocent in my sight or it really counts. The white stone was also used as a ticket of admission into these pagan feasts. And so these Christians might miss out on some of these parties and these feasts and some of the benefits that would come from joining in the culture. But Jesus says, "I'll give you the white stone that will let you into my feast in Revelation 19. We will celebrate what God has done forever and ever and ever." Jesus is promising the church, "If you'll stand firm, if you'll stick with me, if you hold to all of Christ, I will count you righteous. I will declare you innocent." I will let you into my love and my good favor. This is what Jesus was promising. So here's the bottom line. Hold to all of Christ, and you may face the world's sword, but you will receive the reward of Christ. Hold to all of Christ, and you may face the world's sword. You may be disliked or canceled, but you will receive the reward of Christ. And that is worth giving everything up for. You know, Jesus isn't asking us to pay a price higher than he has already paid. Remember, remember how Jesus called Antipas my faithful witness in verse 12? Well, Jesus was just applying one of his own titles to Antipas because Jesus was the greater faithful witness in a hostile world. In one, Revelation 1 verse 5, it says, Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, He is the ultimate faithful witness who proclaimed God's good news to people all over Israel. And he faced hostility for it, but he kept loving people and living it out and sharing it with people. He faced pressure to twist the message a little, to make it a little bit more political. He faced misunderstanding and scorn. And ultimately, he faced the sword of Rome because he remained faithful in his witness to the gospel. Jesus stood firm. Why? Because of you and because of me. He counted it worthy to give up his life for your sake. He chose to give up his life at the cross because he knew it would save you from ultimate condemnation before God. You see, God gave him the black stone of condemnation so that through faith in Jesus, we might receive the white stone of innocence and righteousness and acceptance and be given admission into the end time feast and victory and celebration of Jesus at his second coming. Hold to all of Christ and you will enjoy the reward of Christ. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that you're with us, that you dwell among us, you know what we face. We thank you that you faced everything we face and far more for our sake, that you stood firm, you kept loving and living and sharing right up to the cross where you gave your last breath. Jesus, you are worthy of our lives. You are worthy of our allegiance, our love, our awe, our reverence. Have your way among us, Lord. Please, Lord, protect us from the subtle deceptions and the subtle things that want to get us off track. Protect us from pride, pride, and from cowardice, and from lack of love. Protect us from those things which displease you, Lord. We want to be pleasing to you. We ask this for your sake. Amen.